Welcome to Pioneering Ideas, a new podcast from the Pioneer Portfolio at the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation. I'm your host, Christine Nieves, and the program associate for the Pioneer Portfolio. So what is the purpose of our podcast? Simple. We just want to have an opportunity to get you to know a little bit more about our team members and our grant making. So listen up and you learn a little bit more about the kinds of ideas that we're likely to fund. First up, a conversation with Brian Quinn, the team director of the Pioneer Portfolio. Brian, tell us a little bit about the purpose of the Pioneer Portfolio. A lot of people probably don't know and are confused about what we do at the foundation. The Pioneer Portfolio was created to give the foundation a bit of an outlet to experiment with more future-oriented, disruptive innovations that could be game changers in the future. And by experimenting and by identifying and supporting and accelerating these uh, innovations, we hope that we can find new ways to solve the big problems we're, we're trying to tackle at the foundation. Tell us a little bit more about our challenges when we talk about you know, what do we mean by, by innovative work in health and healthcare? We're really looking for uh, uh, solutions that are transformative or are game changers, um, things that are big steps forward. But as you mentioned, giving away money is not uh, always an easy thing. We see hundreds and hundreds of ideas every year, and we might only make 10 or 15 grants. And so the process of winnowing down all of those ideas to find the ones that f- feel like they're the most pioneering, that fit best with the the mission of the team, that's the challenge that we face. Are there some examples that maybe come to mind that would be good for people who are interested and and thinking, okay, how do I know if my idea is actually innovative? So uh, one of the things that we've done on the team is, um, with this problem in mind, created a set of criteria that we use internally but can also be used outside the team uh, to determine whether or not a, a, a project or an idea is pioneering. Uh, And so these are whether a project is future-oriented, whether it's original, uh, whether it's sort of cross-sectoral or interdisciplinary, that is, whether it applies uh, an idea from a different field and tries to use it in the service of health and healthcare, whether it's unconventional, that is, whether it's sort of out of left field, whether it's uh, sizable or or transferable, it can be used uh, to tackle bigger problems or on a a broader range of problems, and finally, whether it's, it's transformational. Now, we recognize that uh, innovation cannot be boiled down to a set of six checkoff marks, uh, and so we balance that with an intuitive sense about um, what's innovative and what could be a potential game changer. Are there any other challenges that applicants should be aware of? I think it's really important for, for applicants to keep in mind that our highest priority is identifying ideas and innovations that are going to make a contribution to improving the health and health care of all Americans. We really, um, we're looking to support projects that uh, directly support the public good or can be repurposed to uh, support the public good. And we're always open to, to new ideas. So it, we, we're really glad to hear from, from people, especially our listeners right now. So can you tell us a little bit about what they can do to reach out to us? Uh, the first thing I'd recommend is to take a shot. I mean, we try to make this uh, as easy as possible for applicants. They can submit a brief proposal to us at any time. That's a two or three page narrative and a very simplified budget. So we try to make the the barrier to entry pretty low. But I would uh, also encourage them to come to the website to read more about what we do as a team and some of the projects we've funded in the past. We have a very diverse portfolio of projects. I would follow us on Twitter, um, read the Pioneering Ideas blog. And I should say that people don't hesitate to shoot us an email out of the blue or cold call us. And and so we're, we're always happy to chat and and recognize that it's important for us to be open and and responsive to to interested parties. That's great. Well, thank you so much, Brian. Thanks, Christine. Great to be here. (music) 
March, the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation issued a call for proposals to apply behavioral economics to the challenge of reducing the use of low-value healthcare services. And at the end of May, the foundation notified those applicants from whom we are seeking a full proposal for funding. In this next segment, Pioneer team member Lori Melikar, who led the call for proposals, talks with doctors Kevin Volt and David Ash about the types of ideas they received, what piqued their interest as being particularly innovative, and the value of sharing all of the ideas that were submitted. For this project, we ask that applicants only submit an idea, um, a 1,500-character idea, and then we allow them a little bit more space to talk about their partnership so that they wouldn't take up space in the idea talking about their partnership. So it made it easy for us to review a lot of different ideas, and I, I found that that I got enough of a sense from the idea about whether it was a, well, enough of a sense from 1,500 characters about whether it was a pioneering idea and one that we would really want to look under the hood to see whether they were actually going to be able to, to make this idea, to, to test it out. I think it's a nice balance between getting a lot of ideas on the table but not putting much of a burden on applicants on the first round. You know, it's a, it's a tough funding climate and I think everyone's willing to step to the plate and put in applications, but I very much like, as somebody who has been on the other side of the table many, many times, it's nice to have a very short process for the initial screening, where then the sense is only in the second round where you have to put together more of a full proposal, then the probability is much higher. The project, I think, that really grabbed our attention, talked about the problem briefly, talked about their innovation and surprised us with what they were trying to do. It's a combination of a neat process, an important goal, and um, something that's a little bit different. You know, I think the best proposals had elements of all of that somehow in almost haiku format uh, that, that was able to fit into 1,500 characters. Something that I was wanting very much to do is uh, to share many of the ideas that won't go on to the next level. Um, we were only able to invite back 19 ideas to the next phase, um, and we received over 250, I believe, ideas. If we made all ideas that we received public, we might get fewer ideas because people were worried about protecting their own ideas. It seems that if you were to do that, you might want to experiment with some different models of you know, either having people opt in or having people opt out and see what the rates are. But I think what's challenging for academics is that the ideas are their currency and you know, many of them will want to run with them on their own and further develop them as opposed to floating them out to the broader world and having others run with them. It does lend itself to thinking about how to structure an efficient marketplace mm -hmm. between idea generators and idea needers. You know, at the simplest level, you could think of some kind of Craigslist you know, people needing ideas, ideas needing, you know, sponsors. You could also imagine other kinds of crowdsourcing or tournament approaches in which there could be prizes for winning ideas, just like there might be prizes for winning slogans, and that people can vote on them in some kind of almost, almost democratizing the approach and, and creating a, a market for this. It's a little different for research projects where the idea comes with the ownership as sort of Kevin pointed out, where you, you want to take the project forward and actually be the one to do it. We would read a proposal and say, this should just be done. This should just be tried. And this 
this researcher is partnered with an organization that has an interest in trying to solve this problem. And so why do they need our money to do that? They, they should just go off and do it. And, and actually, if they don't do it, somebody else should. Even if we don't fund this project, we should hand this idea to somebody else so that they, so we could quickly spread new innovations to address this challenge across the country. It suggests that there's value added from the Pioneer program in ways that are separate from the funding. Getting grant funding adds external legitimacy to something that might have been an internalized institutional imperative, but it just needs that extra imprimatur. When do we need a lot of rigorous evidence before we decide to spread something, and when do we want people to just try it, um, especially in the field of quality improvement, just go ahead and try it and do it and do it with a small N. If it works, keep going, and if it doesn't, stop. To my thinking, the biggest risk in any of these go-ahead-and-try-it ideas is going ahead and trying it without having an evaluation of, of some sort. So many people just try things but don't have any real systematic way of knowing in the end of whether they think it actually worked or not. Thanks so much for joining me for the conversation. It was a pleasure. Thank you for having the conversation. I look forward to more. A recent survey of primary care physicians in the UK revealed that most had given their patients a placebo. There's no doubt that doctors shouldn't lie to their patients, but what if doctors could be honest and tell their patients they were giving them a placebo and it still improved their symptoms? Ted Kapchuk of Harvard's program in placebo studies and the therapeutic encounter is exploring the use of placebos, how they work, how they should or shouldn't be used, and the precise mechanisms by which they work. As part of a series of seminars being supported by the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation on June 19th and 20th, Ted and three other world-renowned scientists spoke to a group gathered in Boston, including Pioneer Team Director Brian Quinn, about the developing science of placebo. In the next segment, we'll hear some of what they had to say. My name is Ted Kapchuk. I'm the director of the program of placebo studies at the Beth Israel Deaconess Hospital, Harvard Medical School. And I'm, associate I'm an associate professor of medicine. And our job is to foster and promote research in placebo effects and the therapeutic counter, uh, collaborating with all the 17 different hospitals at Harvard Medical School. What I study is the drama, the theater of the provision of care. And that drama is a potent mixture of many, many forces. Patients bring fear, anxiety, confusion, hope. Physicians bring the presence of a mediator between the forces that control things and what's going on in a person. They bring calmness. They bring ability to say, this is what's going on. The placebo is usually thought about as a fake medicine, a sugar pill or saline injection. And the placebo effect is the effect of, most people say, the effect of a placebo pill or a saline injection. Um, in fact, that's wrong. Saline and sugar pills, in most cases, have no effect. It can't be an effect if something has no effect. What the placebo effect is, is the effect of everything that surrounds the fake pill or a real pill, that surrounds the fake injection or a real injection. It's the compassion, trust, care. It's the ritual. It's the symbols. It's the doctor-patient interaction. Um, it's the hope 
that people have. I had read a profile of Ted in The New Yorker. Michael Spector had written a, a piece on him. We talked a little bit about placebos on the team and uh, recognized that it was potentially an interesting topic, uh, but because the foundation doesn't fund biomedical research and a lot of the, the uh, need in this field is additional research, we weren't quite sure how, um, how to plug into the issue. But I called Ted out of the blue one day and sort of explained what we do on Pioneer and why we were interested in this topic and went back and forth a little bit and uh, sort of crafted this uh, project as a way to support the field. The Robert Wood Johnson grant to our program is, is really designed to get the word out and make what we've been trying to make more visible, more visible to the general community of healthcare. We are on the, the cutting edge of, of what's happening here in this field, and uh, you get the sense with the people who were in the room yesterday and again today that um, the, their next research study will be even more important and more interesting and move the field forward uh, further. Um, so it's, it's a fun time to be exploring this issue. How am I going to change healthcare? I don't know, but Robert Wood Johnson said they thought we were doing it and they're going to help us. So that's one way. So it must be doing something right. <laughs> You know, we recognize that not all of our, uh, the ideas that Pioneer supports will be successful, but we hope that with our support and, and our investigation that we can find those one or two game changers that are really going to transform uh, the health and health care of all Americans. Up next, Pioneer team member Paul Torini recently spoke with Ben Haywood, the co-founder of Patients Like Me, about the potential outcomes of making patient-generated, real-time, real-world health data available to researchers and clinicians. Not everybody is familiar with patients like me. Can you give folks a little bit of background, please? Patients like me is a network of patients that have come together to uh, share detailed information about the treatments they're taking, the symptoms they're experiencing, the conditions they have in, a, in an open social environment so they can learn from one another so that the data that they contribute to the community and to the system can be utilized by researchers to better understand disease. I first met uh, your brother Jamie five years ago or so at, I think, the first TED-Med meeting. It was still really early on in the development of patients like me. And what I saw was your understanding of the power of the patient experience and how it could really help us understand in a much different way than we could, than we, than we can using the traditional information that we collect about patients to understand disease and, and help people deal with their conditions. The way clinicians have been informed about what patients are doing is patients go into the office and they have a conversation and they run some tests, but people don't live their lives in doctor's offices. This notion that Gathering that information in some way could not only make care for the individual patient better, but aggregating that information could help provide insights for all patients and for providers and for researchers, we thought was a pretty powerful insight. And so I think just started a long tail conversation with you all at patients like me to try to figure out what was something that we could do together that made sense for what patients like me was trying to achieve, but also made sense for the kinds of things that the Pioneer portfolio was interested in supporting. And I think that's where we settled in on the, this project to build the Open Research Exchange for Developing Patient Reported Outcomes. As you guys were thinking about the Open Research Exchange, we on Pioneer had been looking at the space of real-world, real-time data. So, you know, this is data that, that 
people generate in the real world, often in real time, whether it's from a continuous glucose monitor or um, their cell phone or any one of a number of other uh, devices, sensors, and tools, and seeing this as an emerging category of data that we needed to learn a lot more about. How rigorous was it? Was it dependable? Was it valid? Uh, how do you inject it into the workflow? How does it get shared back with patients? Are there liability issues as they relate to providers? Well, these, there was a whole set of questions around the use of this real-world, real-time data that we felt needed exploring. And one of the questions that we saw pretty clearly was providers weren't sure that they could trust the data. And that's when I think we began to see a sweet spot between what you were interested in pursuing and patients like me and some of the questions that we were asking on Pioneer as it related to real-world, real-time data. You know, our perspective in general is first and foremost to make those sensors or those patient report outcomes meaningful to the patient first and foremost in managing their own care. And that will begin to drive that back into the system when they're working with their clinicians um, and, then, and, and, and then actually, you know, further up the food chain to actually begin to drive a change in the system. We should probably explain to people what the Open Research Exchange is or will be. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, so the Open Research Exchange is a platform for researchers, uh, expert patients, clinicians to come to an open environment where they can author new patient-reported outcome measures. So these are new measures for individual disease state or, uh, or, or in symptoms or other areas of importance to patients that they can author and design them on the platform and then be able to deploy them on the Patients Like Me network to rapidly validate them. Uh, learn from the patients, engage the patients in what they care about to inform those PROs, and then validate and, and publish them on the Open Research Exchange for anyone uh, to use in any environment, both on PLM, Patients Like Me Network, or in the clinic, or in a research project offline, or in a phase four study, or whatever, wherever the right environment. We really truly believe that the, the idealized measure of human health should be something that we're all working to uh, get better and better at as a system for patients, and that that shouldn't be owned and, and, and monetized, you know, in a way that, that slows that progress. And so what we're doing on the Open Research Exchange is we're, again, as you said, we're, all of the scales developed on that platform are available for Creative Commons license, which means that anyone can use them for any, in any environment, and they can actually iterate and improve upon them as long as they bring those iterations and improvements back to the system. Patients Like Me has developed over the last seven years a couple of scale, a handful of scales that we've developed um, for our patient network in conjunction with partners and our, on our own, and we're contributing those into the system as well to set, as a sort of seed to get that started. So this project has been underway for a handful of months, but recently you went public with a call for participants. What's been the response? We, we've gotten tremendous uh, positive feedback on it. Um, we were at the ISPOR meeting where we really launched it publicly, which is a, a what is, what International is Society for Pharmacoeconomic and Outcomes Researchers. And what kind of response have you had from individual patients? I don't think we're quite there yet, Paul. I think, um, you know, as we begin to deploy the first couple of designs of scale that, that researchers are working on to the Patients Like Me Network. I think we'll be, um, you know, working to explain it and engage them, and I think that's an opportunity where we'll get a lot more feedback. I mean, one of the important things we're trying to build into the platform is for patients to have a lot of opportunity to actually give feedback about the relevance and meaning, 
meaningfulness of the, the work that's being done. So I, I see that happening over the next six to 12 months as we engage more and more patients directly in the research we're doing. And then I think as the platform expands next year, we'll be open to, uh, it'll be a, there'll be a lot more bandwidth available for patients to come on and actually potentially do some of the zone scale development themselves. And then take us out, I don't know, three or four years into the future. The platform is up and running. It's succeeding and exceeding your original vision for it. What's changed? because of it and because of the measures that are produced using it. What I see in three, four, five years out is that the, the number of tools and the number of measures that patients have available to them to deeply understand and, and, and capture their patient experience in a way that the system will respond to will be greatly enhanced and that will be um, significantly farther on that journey to where patient value drives market value of products and services. Ben, I think that's a great place to end this. I think it really captures the vision that you have for this open platform and um, the potential and the power that we saw inside Pioneer in the real-world, real-time experience that patients have. Thank you, Paul. It's, uh, it was a pleasure doing this today, and, and you know we really have enjoyed working with you and the Pioneer team and greatly appreciate the support on the Open Research Exchange. For those of you who want more information, you can go to the patient network is patientslikeme.com, or if you want to see what we're doing on the Open Research Exchange, um, you can go to openresearchexchange.com, and you can sign up for email updates on what's going on, as well as if you're interested in potentially developing a scale, you can uh, put in information about what your objectives are, and we can connect with you on that. Thank you, guys. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in. Let us know what you think and what you want to hear about in our next podcast by posting a comment on our blog or reaching out to us on Twitter. I'm your host, Christine Nieves. Thanks for listening.